mystery tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 76th episode of the History Ghost Bomb podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And you knew this one was coming probably pretty quickly because we went to the St. Augustine Light Station last weekend. So we're going to share with you the history and hauntings of this extraordinary lighthouse and also share what possibly might be a paranormal experience we had. Yes, we did the Dark of the Moon tour up in St. Augustine at the Lighthouse, and we actually had five of our listeners join us on this tour. So we had our largest meetup to date. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. We want to thank Dave and Ann and Belle and Jaron and Julie for coming with us. Yes, it was great to have all of you. And we taped a few things during the tour that we're going to share with you on tonight's show. So I think that'll be pretty exciting to hear some of the stories that we heard there and also listen to us as we do a little bit of our own investigation. Yes, and the one thing that I know Diane had mentioned in the review she did of the tour, but it was very cool because we had some downtime where we were allowed just to go back and revisit some of the sites that we'd seen during the actual formal tour. Yes, we highly recommend this tour because not only did you get to do that where you had We almost had, I think, an hour of free time to go and roam about the property, the woods, inside the buildings, to look at things for ourselves. But you also get to go inside the buildings, and you get to go up in the lighthouse. All the way to the top, and it's the only tour that allows you into the lighthouse at night. So you get to see the city at night, and... It was it was a lot of fun. It's a little, I don't know, it might have been actually easier for me to go up the lighthouse at night because I couldn't see how far down it was since I'm afraid of heights. But then again, you're also a little bit afraid of the dark. <laughs> I know. So I was really just pushing it all the way around. Let's see. I'm a little bit afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of heights. So let's go up a lighthouse at night with no lights on. Denise, before we get into talking about the light station, like to point everybody in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com. Everything you can want to know about the show is there. If they want to get a hold of us, where can they do that, Denise? They're going to do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we are into the last few days where you guys can send in your haunted true experiences that you've had. We have a fabulous pile sitting here. I can't wait to share the Halloween special with all of you. So we're probably going to cut things off by the 24th. So make sure you let us know before the 24th so we have time to tape everything. If you have a story that you would like to share, either you can write it yourself or we can record you telling it. We also had an influx of people into the Spooktacular crew, Denise. I know quite a few people joined this week. We want to welcome Michelle. Hey, Michelle. And hello to Kate. Hello, Kate. We also want to welcome, I think it's Lisa, L-E-I-S-A. That's how I would pronounce it, or Lisha. But anyway, let us know how to pronounce your name, but welcome to the crew. And Sherry. Hey, Sherry. Denise, are you ready to go back to the lighthouse? I am. These are the most fun shows for us to do because we can actually share our personal experiences and what things look like to us. So hopefully we'll give you a feeling of what it was like to actually be there with us.
Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. In December of 1900, a ship was sailing to the Flannan Islands in the UK. Its mission was to bring supplies and a relief keeper to the Eileen Moore Lighthouse. The island had been named for St. Flannan, who had been an Irish bishop because he built a chapel on the remote island. Other than the lighthouse keepers, the island was uninhabited. The ship arrived and docked and noticed something amiss right away. No one was at the dock to meet them. The relief lighthouse keeper, Joseph Moore, ascended the stairs that led up to the lighthouse and he had a feeling of foreboding. The fact that no one had responded to the blasting of the ship's horn was troubling. The door to the lighthouse was unlocked, and the kitchen left evidence that the keepers had vacated quickly. There was half-eaten food, and a chair was tipped over. Two of the three oil-skinned coats were missing. The kitchen clock had stopped. A search of the island was ordered, but no sign of the keepers was found. The head of the Northern Lighthouse Board headquarters, Robert Muirhead, left for the island a few days later to investigate. The historic UK website describes what the investigation revealed. Quote, Muirhead immediately noticed that the last few days of entries were unusual. On the 12th of December, Thomas Marshall, the second assistant, wrote of severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years. He also noticed that James Ducant, the principal keeper, had been very quiet and that the third assistant, William MacArthur, had been crying. What is strange about the final remark was that William MacArthur was a seasoned mariner and was known on the Scottish mainland as a tough brawler. Why would he be crying about a storm? Log entries on the 13th of December stated that the storm was still raging and that all three men had been praying. But why would three experienced lighthouse keepers safely situated on a brand new lighthouse that was 150 feet above sea level be praying for a storm to stop? They should have been perfectly safe. Even more peculiar is that there were no reported storms in the area on the 12th, 13th, and 14th of December. In fact, the weather was calm and the storms that were to batter the island didn't hit until December 17th. The final log entry was made on the 15th of December. It simply read, Storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. What was meant by God is over all? End quote. A box of ropes was found strewn across the rocks near the water, and it was surmised that the keepers were trying to rescue the rope from the sea, and a wave washed them away. But then, why had the clock stopped in the kitchen? Was it such an emergency that all three keepers had to speed off, leaving a chair on the floor? And why wasn't the third oilskin coat used? And what of those entries with the bizarre weather revelations? Had some weird weather event only taken place on the island? Whatever happened, this mystery certainly is odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> On this day, October 17th, in 1346, the Battle of Neville's Cross is fought. It was fought during the Second War of the Scottish Independence. King David II led his band of Scottish troops into battle, and they numbered between 10,000 and 15,000 men. 
King Edward III had violated the Treaty of Mail, which had ended the Hundred Year War by bringing troops into Normandy. The French were beaten, and so David II marshaled his troops. Unfortunately, he did not take advantage of the element of surprise he had, and his troops took their time moving forward. They camped outside of the city on October 16th, and the next morning a small scouting faction was sent out. They were met by the English forces and were nearly all killed. A couple were able to get away to warn David II. It was too late to reach a better position. The English had the upper hand. The battle was tough, and two factions fighting with David II took heavy losses and finally took off, leaving him to battle with his troops alone. They had some success hitting the English flank, but eventually were beaten, and David II was captured. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London for 11 years. Lord Ralph Neville was one of the commanders of the English forces, and he had a cross erected on the battlefield. That is where the battle got its name. This is Christopher. And this is Joe. From the Curioso Podcast. And here at the Curioso, when we want to listen to ghost tours for the theater of the mind, we listen to the History Goes Bump Podcast. The St. Augustine Lighthouse is actually a light station, meaning that the lighthouse is accompanied by several outbuildings. This is one of the tallest and oldest lighthouses in America. While many families lived here without incident, there were a couple that suffered tragedy. And it is through those tragedies that spiritual energy seems to have continued on, even after all these years. We had what seemed to be an experience of our own. Come with us as we share that and the history and hauntings of the St. Augustine Light Station. We have discussed the history of St. Augustine in a couple of other podcasts. Obviously, this is one of our favorite cities to visit. Here is a brief refresher on the origins of St. Augustine. The city was founded in 1565, making it one of the oldest cities in both North and South America. It is America's oldest city. The city took its name from the day upon which the city was founded by Pedro Menendez de Aviles, the Festival of St. Augustine. The city was originally founded to protect the Spanish trade route, and the Castillo de San Marco was built to help facilitate defense with a small city cropping up nearby. St. Augustine found itself being constantly under assault. It was decided that a watchtower needed to be built so that the people of the city would know when they were going to be attacked. They chose the spot where the modern-day lighthouse now stands. The tower was built from wood in the 1500s. Several times it had to be rebuilt because wood was a bad choice for material. Later, it was decided that what was really needed was a lighthouse. In May of 1824, the Coquina-built lighthouse lit its light for the first time. It stood for several decades as the shoreline washed slowly away. Joseph Andrew and his wife, Maria de los Dolores Mestre Andrew, lived here before the Civil War. Joseph met tragedy one day when he decided to paint the outside of the tower, and he fell to his death. Later on in the podcast, we will play one of the guides describing this horrific event. Maria took over as lighthouse keeper in 1860. She was the first female and the first of Hispanic descent to have that job. During the Civil War, a local harbor master named Paul Arnoux and Maria removed the lens from the lighthouse to keep it from Union soldiers, and they buried it in the ground. 
Arnoux was taken captive and under torture on a vessel. He revealed the location of the lens and the Union forces replaced it so they could see the shipping lanes. Maria left after this and never returned. Or perhaps she did in the afterlife. And an interesting thing about Maria is that we're not 100% sure she's Maria or Mariah. So we had, we'd actually asked our one of our guides about that because she, when she was telling the stories, as you will hear, mentions Mariah. But when you read it, we read it as Maria. And she said it is pronounced as both. And sometimes there's actually an H on the end of the name. So we're not sure if it was a pronunciation thing. If she was Mariah, coming from Spanish descent, I'm leaning towards Maria. So... Which is why we chose to say Maria, but yes, Kelsey said that it could be done either way. And the really cool point I want to make, too, is that not only was Kelsey our guide for the evening tour, but the next day we decided to go back during the day because Denise and I had been there before, but my folks had not, and they wanted to see all the historical stuff because all the lights were out, so you couldn't read any of the descriptions for any of the displays or any of that stuff. So when we went back, there was Kelsey there the next day. So we're like, oh, you!" so these people who gave the Dark of the Moon tour actually work at that facility, so it's not just a ghost tour that was coming through. Right, exactly. By 1870, the government realized that the lighthouse was in danger and they began construction on the present-day lighthouse in 1871, making sure to build a firm foundation in Coquina. Iron and brick were used for the tower. The lighthouse was completed in 1874. It is St. Augustine's first and oldest brick structure still standing. Paul J. Peltz was the architect who designed the lighthouse. He also designed the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., The lighthouse rises to 165 feet above sea level and contains 219 steps to reach the top. We climbed those steps both in the dark on the ghost tour and the next day when we returned in the light. We must be gluttons for punishment. (laughs) I love going up there, though, for the view and my poor Diane. Well, she's the one who started us on lighthouses, but I drag her along with me. I think they're beautiful. I just, unfortunately, I'm afraid (laughs) of heights. So I go up them, but uh, I stay very close to the lighthouse. And it was funny. We were talking to Patrick Keller because we were recording a roundtable that you guys are going to get to enjoy the week of Halloween. And he had said, oh, you didn't look scared in any of the pictures. And I said, yeah, but did you notice that I was always (laughs) the one who was right next to the lighthouse, like glued to the wall? Yeah, so it doesn't show in her face, but she is the one who started the lighthouse thing, so I do do have to put that out there. The lighthouse is capped with a red lantern-shaped dome that contains the original First Order Fresno lens. The lens is hand-blown, stands nine feet tall, and came from Paris, France. The lens was damaged in the 1980s by a vandal taking a pot shot with a rifle. Headkeeper William Russell was the one to first light the torch in the lighthouse in October 15, 1874. And so we are here 141 years after that event. The old watchtower was still standing nearby, but by 1880, it had been toppled into the sea. And in our show notes, we took a bunch of pictures while we were there. So there's a bunch of pictures in the show notes, and we do have a picture of that Fresno lens with the bullet hole in it. It probably sounds familiar to you to hear the Fresnel lens term because we've discussed on other podcasts the Fresnel lenses and they've been used in several of the lighthouses that we've covered. The tower on the inside is illuminated by nine windows and there are eight flights of cast iron spiral stairs that end in platforms so that people can rest. This would have been needed by the keepers who had to hoist a can full of fuel weighing 30 pounds up those stairs every two hours. 30 pounds up 219 stairs every two hours. Yes, and they had actually a like reproduction of the cans and they had done something to weight it so it would weigh what it would weigh full, but it, it was empty so you could pick it up to see. 
And I was just watching half of the people struggle just to get to the top of the lighthouse, which is their, their selves and their cameras and, you know, maybe a person. So I was just thinking about carrying that thing up and down those stairs every two hours would have been quite the feat. There were some older guys that were going up it with us, and he was like, why didn't they just rig a pulley system? <laughs> and I'm thinking, these guys were pretty smart, so there was probably a good reason why they didn't do it. It must not have worked, or there was not a way to do that. Or would the kerosene or the oil dump and cause a fire? Sure. This is no longer necessary today because the lighthouse is fully automated with a 1,000-watt bulb lighting the original beacon of the Fresnel lens. So the original lens is still what they use today. But before automation, lighthouse keepers were needed. The brick lighthouse keeper house that still stands today was built in 1876. It was a triplex that held two families and a single lighthouse keeper assistant. The first family to live in the house was the Harn family. William A. Harn was originally from Philadelphia. He had served during the Civil War as captain of the 3rd New York Independent Battery and fought in the battles at Fredericksburg and Gettysburg. His military service is what probably led him to be the first keeper to wear a uniform. He arrived in St. Augustine with his wife, Kate, and six daughters. For 20 years, Harn served as the head keeper at the lighthouse. In 1886, Harn documented an earthquake that rocked the lighthouse in August of that year. He thought the tower was going to fall over. During his tenure, fuel was switched from lard to kerosene. The family had to deal with little amenities. Bathrooms were not inside the keeper's house until 1907. Electricity was not installed until 1925. During World War II, the Coast Guard used the light station as a lookout, and they built a garage where they could work on vehicles. Today, that building is used to help restore recovered nautical items and things damaged by water. By the 1960s, families no longer stayed at the station. The house was rented out, and in 1970, it was nearly gutted by fire. Then it stood vacant for a while and was in danger of being bulldozed. In 1980, the Junior Service League of St. Augustine signed a lease, and restoration efforts began. The Fresnel lens was first to be fixed. The rest followed, and today the St. Augustine Light Station is a museum that hosts thousands of visitors. The building that visitors enter through today was built to be a cottage for a keeper. The keeper who had it built was unwilling to live in the keeper's house because of all the unexplained activity going on in the house. It would seem that some of the keepers and some of the family members have decided to stay on at the light station in the afterlife. We're going to play several sound bites that we recorded that night featuring some of the haunting stories. Before we started the tour, we were informed of a little issue with the women's bathroom. Now, ladies, I have good news and bad news about your restroom. What do you want first? Bad news. Of course, this is my kind of room. Your side is haunted. That's some good news. I think the mouth saying they have had EVPs of a voice saying, get out. I'd rather get hit with toilet paper. Apparently, it is haunted. Yes, and so I know I was a little bit nervous um, when halfway through the tour I needed to go use the facilities, and I was the only one in there, so I was kind of hoping that that was not tempting the spirits, so to speak. We were looking forward to your stories of being pelted with toilet paper rolls. <laughs> Didn't happen. Didn't happen. One of the more famous stories about the lighthouse goes back to its initial construction. The construction supervisor was Hezekiah Pitty, and he had his children at the site with him. A rail car had been rigged to serve as a way to move supplies. The children found it to be quite handy for play, and they would ride the car along the rail to where it stopped near the ocean. One day, the car did not stop like it normally did, and it went flying into the ocean, trapping three young girls. 
Only one of them was rescued. She was a neighbor girl. The other two girls were Hezekiah's children. Later, men laying bricks along the scaffold would hear children laughing. They would scamper down to warn the kids not to play with the rail car, and they would find no children anywhere. In the 1960s, a man had rented the keeper's house and invited friends to stay with him. They woke up that night and found a girl in an old-fashioned dress staring at them from beside the bed. The girl smiled at them and disappeared. We hiked through a nearby woody area and tried to figure out where the rail car line would have been. And before we did that, a guide showed us pictures taken in the woods of a white figure. So we were really a little apprehensive walking through the woods. We didn't have any flashlights other than what was on our cell phones. And I'll play just a little bit of us walking through the woods as we're trying to find that. We are walking through the woods right now, seeing if we pick up anybody. Are there any of the kids playing out here in the woods? I wonder where Just for the record, I need to do this here. I wonder where the railroad cart was in here. That the real kids rode on. Like, was it through the woods? I'm not sure what it ran, but it ran down. That's how they took things from the ship up. Right, but did it go through up here? I think it was the cart, I think it was more in the open area, wasn't it? Okay, well, we were, where were we standing in the house? We were standing this way. She said it ran this way. So it's got to be like over here somewhere, right? Yeah. That was me. Ooh, that's a path. That is a path. I'd go down it. There's a big thing I'm about to say, this is a branch. Watch the hanging branch. not connected to anything. Of course, I'm going to get us lost out here. I just passed through a cobweb, just so you know. I don't know if this is a real path or not. Okay, there's a... Can I have a flashlight up here? Okay, there's like... <laughs> palm fronds. No, I just thought I heard something rustling in there.
There's a root. You've come a long way. Ooh, do not trip. There's a root sticking up there. Alright, I've come to a fork in the road. Which way do I go? Boy Scout troop. Lost here. Years ago. Oh, just kidding. I see the lights of a house in the distance. No. Okay, this is the Rudy path, so be careful. This is the one he told us not to go down. Okay, be careful. There's steps down here. Step down. Be careful. Hold the flashlight right there so they can see the stairs, Denise. Sticks, yeah. Oh, you're right. All right, where should we go to next? The children are seen inside the lighthouse as well, sometimes standing near the stairwell, wearing what people describe as old-fashioned clothes. The guide showed us a picture of a shadow figure taken as it looked down over a railing. That picture was a very compelling picture. We wonder if perhaps it was the girls who played a trick on us. Diane and company were mysteriously locked in the lighthouse while on free time. I had left to go outside for a minute to ask one of the guides a question, and when I came back, I could not open the door. So Diane was on the other side, and her and Jaron were trying to open the door from the other side, but it was locked tight. We thought the lock was broken and had automatically locked, but when a guide came by with the key to unlock the door for us, he informed us that the lock on the inside is not functional and hasn't been for some time, and the door can only be locked from the outside with a key, which was the key he used to open it up. So it was quite strange for us. Yeah, because we were inside and we were in a little room looking at some of the displays that were in there, and I was seeing if I could catch any EVPs, and I knew that you had gone outside. Well, the way the door is set, it doesn't close. It just kind of, it's kind of cracked open when somebody goes out of it. It doesn't ever close completely. So Julie and I are standing in there and just doing our thing and talking to each other. And we hear this banging on the door and we're like, well, who's knocking on the door? And Julie's like, they just come in. Why don't they just come in? So the banging persisted. And so then we're like, okay, well, maybe there's an issue. And of course, we're also want to investigate. Are we hearing something that is paranormal in, in some variety. So we it go was out. strange and weird because it was me. Yeah, exactly. It was some, some kind of weird creature <laughs> out there. So we go to the door and I see that it's closed and I hear the knocking on it and I can hear you talking on the other side and then there was another person on the other side too. So I grabbed the knob and I'm trying to open it. I'm like, well, there, you know, the knob had play in it, but I couldn't get it open. And it had one of these little twists knob like locks at the top of it but it was like halfway out of the door it was just kind of hanging there and then jaron came up and he was trying to help me because he's a big guy and he couldn't get the door open and we're both messing with the lock and i'm like well the lock is broken it's not because i was like trying to put it back in the hole because i'm like oh god it came out of the hole or something so i'm starting to think we're really locked in here i guess this lock seems to be broken and then like denise said on her side one of the employees came up and yeah, well, and just kind of talking with you, both dad and I were trying to get in. So it wasn't just me. Dad was pushing, too. So we had big guys on both sides trying to push the door, pull the door open. 
And then when the employee came up, he unlocked yeah. and everything. And the Kelsey had said that sometimes when you push like a button on the side, it will cause it to lock. But they don't know how that could have happened. I mean, it, it would have been a really weird chance for that to have happened like that, especially for the lock to have. I mean, the lock had turned itself. The deadbolt was engaged. Exactly. So we're skeptical. Maybe maybe there was some other reason why that happened, but we just think it's pretty, I don't know, it just seems to us like maybe somebody was playing a little trick on us. Well, and Kelsey was talking until she got called away for something else that the girls do tend to be a bit of pranksters because mm-hmm. they were right around, some of them were, were pre, but a couple of them were right at that teenager age when they when they passed. So it must have been something you did because they waited till you walked out to lock the door. Kids always like to play tricks on me. One of the guides also told us about muddy footprints that were left inside the keeper's house. There were no barefoot children on the tour when the footprints were left, and they could not get them to wash away. They finally just disappeared on their own one day, and we did get to see pictures of those footprints, which were, that was very compelling too, because it was very apparent that they were footprints. Exactly. Now, we could say, well, they were lying to us, and it was some child who really was barefoot that had made those prints. But I trust them. They had no reason to lie about that. And the other pictures she had showed us were pretty real. So I believed her. And again, I think, um, I can't remember who I was discussing it with, but we were talking about how, you know, we were talking in the one podcast, I think it was the Gettysburg, that there would be blood and they'd be cleaning it up. And we were like discussing the physicality of that and how weird. Well, now we have something that is a physicality, but they can't clean it up. And then it just disappears on its own. What is that? I don't know. Disappearing footsteps like in the Haunted Mansion. No. As we mentioned earlier, a keeper named Joseph died while trying to paint the lighthouse. He is here and his wife Maria has returned here as well. The guides told us some personal stories in regards to this and also more details on the way that Joseph died. It was not pretty. Welcome to the top floor of our keeper's house. This is the area that we here on site call our gallery. But it wasn't always a gallery. It was actually originally the bedrooms for the families that lived here. And you can tell, doesn't really look like bedrooms. Uh, that's because we had a rather unfortunate fire. In 1955, we became fully automated, which means we no longer had to have a keeper or their family living here. So we were apartments, we were abandoned, we were a variety of different things. Fifteen years later, early morning 1970, this place went up in flames. And as you'll notice, most of this is wood. Our outside is brick. Our basement is concrete and coquina. And our two original kitchens are also brick. And that's about all that survived. So we sat here, fenced off, abandoned, for another ten years. St. John's County was on our doorstep with a bulldozer ready to tear us down. But our local junior service league stepped in. They did a major fundraising campaign. Uh, They raised enough money to renovate and turn this building into a museum. So this is my very cheesy opportunity to thank you guys for buying these very expensive glow sticks because it's people like you who keep us ready. So thank you. Now, we began construction on the lighthouse in 1871. It was a three-year process. We finished October 1874, so we're celebrating 141 years this month. Um, And during that time, our head of construction was a man named Hezekiah Pitty. 
He lived here with his wife and four of his children. Mary, Eliza, Edward, and Carrie. Now Hezekiah, being an intelligent father, refused to let his children play on the active construction site that was the lake house. But children being children, found things to play on. One such thing was a rail line that had a supply cart on it. That rail line ran outside our courtyard down all the way out into the water about 50 feet. Mm -hmm. There it would have met any ships bringing supplies for the construction of the lighthouse. Those children used it as a Victorian era roller coaster. <laughs> They'd hop in it, let the brake go, go flying down towards the water, bounce off the stop, haul it back, and go again. Things went a tad bit differently on July 10, 1873. Four children got in that car. Mary, who was about 15. Eliza, who was about 13. Carrie, who was four. And an unnamed African-American maid, who was about 10. Those four girls got in that cart. They went flying down towards the water, going faster and faster and faster. And Missed. No, they hit the stop. But the cart flipped over into the water, mm. trapping the girls underneath. There's a local worker, Dan Sessions. He saw the whole thing happen. He was able to get to the cart, lift it, and save just one of those little girls, Carrie, the youngest. The other three drowned. Now, that's a lot of very heavy energy we're dealing with. You've got Carrie, who outlived her older siblings in such a tragic event. You've got those three girls who never got to grow up and live their lives. You've got Dan Sessions, who wasn't fast enough or strong enough to save those girls. And you've got Hezekiah Pity, whose job was basically the reason that half of his children were dead. And it's these girls and this energy that's caused the very worst thing to happen here on a tour. And it happened kind of not here, over there. <laughs> <laughs> you were waiting, weren't you? Now, you, you might be in trouble because the worst thing that has ever happened on a tour, someone's shoes got tied together. <laughs> right? Horrible. We're dealing with a bunch of teenagers and preteens. Like, they're not here to wreak havoc on the lighthouse. They're here to play jokes on us. And let me tell you, they do. They've been known to lock and unlock doors on us, especially in the tower. That door has been having issues recently about locking itself. Um, they have been known to play with our glow sticks. They do these a variety of different ways. Sometimes they'll completely untie the string. I've had mine tied in extra knots. Sometimes they'll pop the glow sticks off. Um, but it is most important to us because of two of its lighthouse keepers. Uh, Joseph and Mariah Andrew. Uh, Joseph served shortly before the Civil War. Uh, he was whitewashing the top of his tower, and his scaffolding failed, and he fell 60 feet to his death. Uh, now, that was a rather unfortunate event. Those were correct reactions to that. Uh, but it gets worse. I found his obituary about six months ago. In it, 
It described his fall. On his way down, he managed to hit the oil house, the wall, and then the stone ground. Yes. Also appropriate reactions. But it gets worse. No, he did not live through it. He lived through first. I don't honestly know. Um, but what I do know is that at that point in time, we were pretty isolated out here, which means we didn't have a whole lot of neighbors. There wasn't a regular, you know, bus, trolley, train, bridge, ferry, anything of that nature. So it was very likely that it was either his wife or his children that saw the whole thing happen and was able to report it to his obituary. Right. Right. Mariah and Joseph have come to join us here at the Lighthouse. Uh, Joseph is, was for a very long time one of our suspects for our shadow figure. Um, more often than not, we get EMF meter activity with Joseph and Mariah. Uh, but Mariah is what we call our woman in white. She's sometimes seen at the top of the tower on very stormy nights looking out to sea in search of ships in the night. Now, I'm a little disappointed that Mariah hasn't come out tonight. The last two evenings in the midst of this story, someone's meter has started going off. And then Mariah has joined us for most of the rest of the tour. So I'm a little disappointed tonight. Um, so I'm going to continue and talk about group experiences. Um, and those are exactly what they sound like. It's when we all see or hear the same thing. Sometimes it's, you know, EMF meter activity. Sometimes it's a figure out of the corner of our eyes. One of my favorite stories has to do with this hallway right here. A couple years ago, there was a group in here, and they started hearing footsteps down this hall. Those footsteps made it about halfway down the hall, and then started to go up. Why? There were stairs. Good job. You guys didn't know I was going to give you a test, did you? <laughs> so these ghost footsteps start up a set of stairs that are no longer there. A couple very brave souls peek out into the hallway, and this is before our exit sign move lighting. Um, so those hallways were actually kind of dark. No one saw anything. No one's EMF meters went off. So they continued on with the tour. A group came back during free time. There in that hallway, they found a set of footprints. These footprints were barefoot, dirty, and child-sized. We had no barefoot, dirty children on the tour. <laughs> um, so our tour guide took a picture, tried to wipe them up. They didn't come up. Hmm. And for three whole weeks, our maintenance guy tried everything, and they didn't come up. Until one day, they were gone. Poof. Nobody knows what happens to them. Their ghosts may hang out on the first floor. We went down into the basement and were told about another keeper named Pete. Pete liked to smoke down here, and occasionally the sweet smell of his tobacco can be detected. He likes to put pressure on men's chests and to touch ladies on the legs. Is that everyone? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. 
you guys are way far away from us. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Um, so this is the room that we call Pete's room. It's named after our longest serving keeper, Peter Rasmussen. He served from 1901 to 1924. Uh, when he retired, moved into the city of St. Augustine, and died about a year and a half later. Now, even though we didn't die here, we do think that Pete has come back to join us. One, because his wife, Lula, died right upstairs, two floors above us, the same area that William Harm would have. I heard it. Is your meter yeah, going off? Uh, I heard no, a footstep footsteps, above us. Yeah. I don't know if anybody else um, heard that. That might be someone on the porch. Okay. okay. Um, just so that's, that's, that's the only issue with being down here is that the porch is right above us. Okay, that's too, probably what it so. is. So. Um, yeah. so we think that Pete has come back to join Lula. Also, the lighthouse service was a very dedicated profession, and we think that he is continuing on with that. Um, now, Pete was a very interesting character. He was not a fan of Taurus um, because he had a lot of people come through during his time. And as a lighthouse keeper, not only did you have to keep the lighthouse and ships and anything that came through, you had to show around all of your visitors. Uh, so he creates a number of interesting sensations, especially in these chairs. We call these Pete's chairs. Um, and sometimes, okay, like a tingly, itchy sensation. Yeah, yeah, I get that all the time. <laughs> uh, now, Pete was a smoker, and I asked these two as we walked in, did they smell anything? And very clearly, frequently, we get a very sweet tobacco smell down here. Just a note: I was in this room about five hours ago, and it didn't smell like this. <laughs> Um, and that's definitely Pete. Um, I'm pretty sure Lula banished him down here to smoke, so he wasn't smoking up the house. Um, <laughs> but uh, Pete, with gentlemen, has a tendency to create a heavy sensation on the chest and shoulders, sometimes a, a heated sensation on the back of the neck, as if someone was breathing on you. Um, he also has a tendency to push, poke, pop, prod, um, throw hats, no. knock hats off. No, he doesn't poke people. Don't tell me he pokes people. Something already poked me. <laughs> <laughs> but with ladies, he's much more favorable. Hair stroking, shoulder massages, which honestly, still waiting on that one. Yeah. Right? Me too. Like, shoot, good for that. <laughs> Right? Um, but he is a most definitely a fan of legs. He will zigzag <laughs> up and down them. Jeans, pants, leggings, not going to stop him. Hmm. Now, I've had some very interesting experiences with Pete. Um, and I personally don't necessarily get a whole lot of stuff, but I definitely deal with Pete a lot. Um, I've had a lady sitting in this chair and as we came into the room, she looked at me and she said, who's Peter? And my response was, why? You know, thinking maybe she'd heard the story, something along those lines. She leaned towards me and said, someone just whispered I am Peter in my ear. Hmm. She was sitting in that chair. Those are brick walls. She was still sitting in that chair, which was really impressive to me. <laughs> um, I was in here probably a month and a half ago now. And I was leaning right where you are, 
And oh, there was the mattress. Yes. Um, and there was a gentleman sitting right here, and he had sat a flashlight and a ball down right in this middle area, just to see if anything would uh, mess with it. And we're talking about Pete. I'm going a little more in depth on his history. And that flashlight turned on and off about five times, which is pretty freaky. Uh, but one of my favorite stories has to do with this window right here. And for those of you guys who can't see it, <coughs> all you can really see is the shadows of bushes. Mm -hmm. And prior to those bushes being there, a group came in, standing in front of that window, their EMF meter spiked like crazy. They started asking questions, figured out that they were talking to Pete, and someone in their group noticed that there was a figure in the window. Those windows are at ground level. You should see feet and legs. They saw a head and shoulders. Uh, they watched that head and shoulders stand there facing them, turn towards the lighthouse, and walk away. Their meters dropped back down to green. We heard stories from both our guide and later Julie and I spoke with another guide who told us some pretty strange occurrences that have happened with Pete. Somebody on tour that's a catalyst. We had one last night, and the strange things were... Is there somebody here with us this evening? Can you spike the meter? Whatever it was, just move through. I've had some in this hallway. We had some in this hallway here. In the other doorway when I walked through it earlier. When my group was in Pete's room, I had three young ladies getting some serious, crazy readings. Normally, there had to be more than one entity down there because usually it'll concentrate on about one person. Their meter will spike highly. The other ones will spike a little bit. These three girls, I mean, it was responding to every question. And they were getting full red spikes. So there haven't been more than one down there. But we had a weird phenomenon last night where they were spiking, but it was almost like something was playing with them. Mm -hmm. Like, it would answer the questions, but then it would jump from person to person to person. It was weird. Almost like it was pacing, going from meter to meter. Yeah, you, you both were going at the same yeah. time because I was watching that. Usually, Mary Pity is found in this room. Everything? Not much. I had a lady here one night who spent 25 minutes in this chair talking with Mary. You can turn the podcast off if it's not going. And I mean, Mary was responding perfectly to every question. Well, it looks like it's gone. Yeah. And she just sat there and asked yes or no questions? Yes. And she would write the answers down in a notebook. The lady or Mary? The lady. Oh. The lady <laughs> wow. was writing the That's really freaky. Yes, the apparition. I was like, wow. Now, Pete has been known to turn flashlights on and off. These lasers have grids on them, and you can see the entities move through the light pattern. Oh, interesting. I had a gentleman downstairs. I took him, and I believe he was probably very sensitive last night. I took him and the lady into the room and left them in Pete's room. As I left the room, I kind of felt cold, but I didn't really think anything of it because the house is old. There's a lot of AC going through here. When I came back into the room with the group a few minutes later, he saw the shadow of a man walk into the room and stand in the corner and then turn around and walk back down the hall. 
Did he have your, like that flashlight? He didn't have the light, but he said his meters were spiking. Both him and the, I leave my meter in there with them, his meter and the gals, the gal sitting across from him, both of their meter, all three of these meters spiked and stayed red for a while. The conversation that was happening in the basement with my group in the beginning of the night was, was quite interesting because normally it takes a lot of energy to pull that amount of energy to create that sort of phenomenon with these meters. So... And Peter, we don't trust anyways. Oh, really? Well, one minute. Thanks, Father Time. They can't, we, we believe he's the only one smart enough to manipulate them. We've oh, had okay. people hear him whisper his name into their ear. Their meters never spiked. I had an incident during uh, a tour where there was a lady standing in the middle of the basement during my tour. Her meter spiked. He would only activate her meter. Other people were holding their meters close by. Mine was touching her meter. Nothing. He would only respond to her meter with her questions. And that went on for about 10 minutes. I mean, I lost a chunk of time down there because it was such an interesting phenomenon to happen. And I'm like, really, dude? (laughs) It's funny because you'll never find me in like a scare house ever. Uh-huh. Kelsey and I will never go to anything like Halloween Horror Nights. Yeah, Halloween we don't Jesus. do that either. No, I do. And people are like, <laughs> and my friends are like, you give ghost tours. Yes, but nothing is going to jump out and right. scare me. Yeah. The worst thing I've been touched. Uh, Miguel and I were in the basement one night locking up, and I just felt compelled to start talking with Peter. And we were standing about this far apart. Bear with me for a moment. And all of a sudden we felt this. And we both jumped at the same time. And he's oh, wow. like, what did you feel? I said, what did you feel? He's like, something touched me. I said, something grabbed my shoulder. But it wasn't menacing. It was like, hey, yeah. thanks for being here. Here. Exactly. And it wasn't like, like, I mean, it was clapped on my shoulder. And it was like, holy crap. So, of course, we kind of freaking run because it's that frightened flight. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's very interesting working here. I've had four different people who are psychics or very sensitives tell me that the little black girl that died in the accident follows me around the house and the property. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, the first couple times you hear it, you're like, okay, thanks. Third time, I started getting a little concerned. Like, is this a bad thing? I've got the power. I've got the house. Which means I have to go to the basement and lock up. Oh. Um, but I never feel menacing. But I never feel like I'm alone in this house. I still can't look into the cisterns day or night for some reason. But I'm not the only guy that has had that problem. Hmm. But I just feel like there's always somebody around me. He seems to be able to control EMF meters. Which is very, very interesting because those are just supposed to pick up the magnetic field. So how could he go near one and not another and, and get him going off? So definitely would be an intelligent spirit exactly it's just when he when this guide said that he had put his meter against the other ladies that was going off and he was getting nothing it again makes you look at the equipment that these ghost hunters run around with and go really do you need to be spending all that money because if the ghost can play with that then how is it even reliable it's already emfs are pretty questionable because they pick up any electromagnetic so you know you got a cell phone near it it's going to be going off so now you're finding out that the ghost can control which ones are going off. It makes you really question it. 
Are the spirits of those who once watched over the lighthouse still here, continuing their watch in the afterlife? Are the ghosts of the children still playing in the woods and in the lighthouse? Were we locked inside the lighthouse by some weird happening with the lock? Is the St. Augustine light station haunted? That is for you to decide. Experiences, a lot of them, especially our guides talked about a ton of experiences that they had. And then we had our own. What I'm finding unique, Denise, and maybe we don't want this to be the case. Lately, we've been starting to have stuff happen on our ghost tours, it seems. And not when we're expecting them. So it's, I don't know. It, these are things that make you go, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> we want to thank you guys for listening to this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library Kettle Whistle Radio Night Story Podcast Prog Watch Red Horse Radio The Lift History Goes Bumble Listen The M Writing Podcast Society 13 Rebuilding Society One Podcast at a Time Executive producers of this episode have been Leanna Sapien, April Rogers Crick, Nicole Johnson, Tanya Turner, Amy Connor, David Ann Student, Heather Williams, Jade Lewis, Stephen Pappas, Patty Henry, Janice Carlson, Dan Foytick, Rachel Cooper, and Levi Drescher. Thank you. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. 